Well, thank you for coming this morning. Um, just before I open this word up to us, with God's help, let's just pray. Dear Lord, please help me to speak clearly and to be understood this morning. May I not be boring or dull. Help me to glorify you and encourage your people to love and obey you more. Help us to see something of the beautiful nature of the good news you have given us so freely by your grace. Help us by your spirit to be awakened and changed and sanctified so that we are obedient to you, Lord Jesus, as our Saviour and our Lord. Amen. If you have that passage open before you, page 880, I think it is, in the Church Bible, that would be great. An old friend of mine uh, told me the story. He couldn't sleep one night. Um, so he came downstairs to get a drink of water. He came into the back kitchen and he was so tired that he left the light off as there was a moon out and there was some light outside. So he stood by the sink getting his walls and he looked out of the back kitchen window and there at the back of the garden on the lawn was a large black cat just sitting there staring at him, just unmoving, motionless. So he went to the back door he unlocked it, he opened it, and he walked out into the garden towards the cat. He was rubbing his fingers, making a noise as he walked towards it. And he crept closer, but the cat just sat there, fixed, not moving. It didn't respond, it just sat looking at him. And as he got closer, he realized it wasn't a cat. It was a watering can. <laughs> it looked like the real thing to him. It looked like a cat, but he was wrong on closer inspection. I don't know if that's happened to you. You thought something was one thing, and then you inspect, on a closer inspection, you discover it's not. Maybe you've been given change, and it looks genuine, the real thing, but on closer inspection, perhaps like me, when you try to use it in the machine, like the one we've got at work for our lunch, it's just rejected as counterfeit. Well, the verses this morning kind of act like a light to help us to see what a true Christian is. Are you the real thing? Or do you maybe just look like it from a distance? I want us to look at this passage today and turn the light on us of God's word, the light of God's word, to test ourselves. Now so far in this letter, Peter, we've, uh, we've seen from Peter that a Christian is someone who has had a spiritual awakening. Look back with me, would you, at chapter 1, verse 3. It's a little bit of a gap, isn't it, since we last looked at this, so let's remind ourselves. Chapter 1, verse 3. Christians had a spiritual awakening. What is a Christian? They've been awakened. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says. In his great mercy, his grace, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in verse 23 of the same chapter, Peter kind of reiterates that. He says this, verse 23, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. We've been born again. A seed, if you like, Peter says there, lives in us and it will live in us forever. It will go on forever into eternity. Now I'm not going back on that. Christians have been spiritually transformed. All Christians. Christ Jesus himself tells us that we must be born again, born from above, born anew. But even if you have had some inner private experience of what Peter's saying in this, in, in the, in this other things, Peter's saying the other things are a better indicator if we're truly born again, if we're genuinely the true article. There are tests and signs that help us to tell if we're one of God's people. What are the signs that we are truly a Christian? What are they? 
But if you look back, if you would, to chapter 2, verse 12, just again, just getting a little bit of the context here. Look at verse 12, it says this. Peter says this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, and listen to this, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That they may see. People will see. Verse 12 says, people will see change. Change will be visible. People should see the difference. There was an old preacher about three centuries ago, this old Puritan preacher, who said one of the ways you know that you're born again, you know, you say, I've had this great experience inside me. That's fine. But he said, and I quote, one of the first persons to see that you've been really born again, he says it will be your horse. Your horse will know the difference. He says you may be born again, but if you're born again, your horse will know the difference. Now he was writing that in the 1690s. Um, but you know what he means by that? You know what he's talking about? He says people will see, even the horses, that you've been, become a more compassionate person. You've become a more understanding person. You've become a less irritable person. You're not as impatient to your horse. You're not as cruel to it. It shows up. You can be seen as a change. If you replace horse with dog, you, you kind of get the picture. My wife Sarah, Sarah, her nana, Nana Partington, we call her Nana Party. I call her Nana as well now. I've only know her, known her as a Christian. But she was converted late in life. She was in her 60s. Uh, this picture was taken a year ago. Not that long. Um, you couldn't meet... You couldn't meet a more lovely, sweet, positive person. She's just bubbling over with a desire to talk about her love for her saviour. People go and see her to encourage her, and they come away more encouraged themselves. Sarah goes and prays with her every week, and is constantly coming away, blessed, even though the situation is so hard in terms of her nana's illness. She's really ill. Well, I was shocked to hear that before her conversion, she was anything but the sweet person that I know. She was a tougher and less loving person. She was a bitter person because of her past. Her change in her 60s was real. She was born again. She's not perfect. But it issued in a real change, a marked change in attitude and in her actions. It should be obvious that you've been changed. You see, it's possible to believe all the teachings in the Bible, all the doctrine, and be moral, but your motive is not the gospel. That's not what's driving you. There's no change. It's all superficial. You might be moral as a tradition, family background, loyalty to your family, but it's just temperament. You look at a person who's very moral and you think they must be a Christian, that proves it. But no, that's not what Peter's saying in, in, this, in this passage or in the Bible. A loving spirit, Peter says, is a far better acid test that you understand the gospel than being moral. Put it this way, if you're a demanding person, a critical person, if you're a cold person, a distant person, not very approachable person, you better look hard to see whether you've understood and taken in the gospel. That's the opposite of these verses here, isn't it? Look at verse 8, just stand over it. It's the opposite. 
This is the acid test. That's chapter 3, verse 8. This is the acid test. You see, it's very, very possible to be in deep denial about the gospel. You may, might say, theologically, on the test, I know I'm saved by grace, not by my works. I understand all that. I've been to speak. I've listened to Anthony and Steve. I've taken it in. I know what the gospel is, that we're saved, how we're saved. I'm saved and accepted not by my works, not by my performance, but by the sheer mercy of God and by what Jesus did on the cross. You may say, you might today say, be sitting there and say, I know, I know all of that. If I give you a test, you might say, I know, and yet you still might be in denial. You might still actually be a person who believes you're saved by your performance and not by your your good works. Well, how can I know? Well, it's simple. If you're in that position, you'll break down into one of two kinds of patterns. First one is you'll either be smug and self-assured, demanding, cold, superior, critical person, wondering why it is that other people can't be as faithful as you are. When you see Christian brothers and sisters falling into sin, being stupid, being unwise, hurting people you love, hurting you, your heart's not filled with compassion or sympathy or anything like that for them. You'll absolutely reject them. You'll be cold to them. Or on the other hand, if you don't believe you're a sinner saved by grace, instead of being cold and and arrogant, and smug and demanding, you'll be all defensive and nervous and insecure, high, on high alert, easily slighted. In either case, you're, you're not forgiving. You're not relentlessly forgiving, relentlessly warm, relentlessly open, relentlessly approachable, relentlessly gracious, vulnerable. And that's the only way you know you're a sinner saved by grace. Are you? Do you find yourself forgiving? Do you find yourself being positive to people who are critical and criticising you? Do you find yourself being able to affirm others even though they may have harmed you? Do you find yourself still wanting to pull and look for the success and have godly desires for those who may have hurt you? Do you find yourself gracious and open and vulnerable with people in your dealings with them, in your manner, in your face? The way you even look at people, your tone of voice, comments so that people will come to you and tell you their problems. Are you that type of person? Or are you kind of crabby and cranky and bad-tempered, grumpy and touchy? Are you sensitive to criticism? Are you always feeling like you've been slighted by other people? Are you cold and smug and self-righteous? When it's lovingly pointed out to you, you do you deny it? You can't see it. You won't accept it. Well, this is the way you know that you believe the gospel. You love others. You love Christians, your Christian brothers and sisters from the heart. I think this is a really searching test. It's the test, though. Not that doctrine, what we believe isn't important because it is. Not that morality isn't important because it is. Because you can't be a Christian unless you're showing evidence of a holy life, but simply being very, very moral, very careful, might have no roots in the gospel. That's the answer test. Look at verse 8 there. Let's just read verse 8, remind ourselves what it says. Finally, Peter says, all of you, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, 
love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. There's the gospel that it's got two parts. One says, you're a sinner. This is what the gospel is about. It's as simple as that. You're a sinner. And you've been saved. You've been loved and accepted by God. You're a sinner and you've been loved and accepted by God. Two parts. Now, do you see how that changes you? Do you believe you're a sinner, first of all? No matter how mad you get with people, if you believe that, look at verse 8 again. At the end of verse 8, it talks about humility. In humility, in, in humility of mind, you'll know you're a sinner. You know you tend to see things in a selfish way, if you, if you know that. You know that you might be wrong. You know that you're limited and that your perspectives are limited. You remember, you know, you were a fool, how, how foolish you were in the past, maybe five or ten years ago, the mistakes you made. You know you're a sinner, and you must be careful not to write people off. You must be compassionate, sympathetic, not nursing grudges. Be careful not to do this, not to think you're right and everyone else is wrong. You know the difference between a church person and a, and a, and a drug dealer outside? The gospel's right, not that much. Not that much. Do you believe that? I find it hard to believe that. If you do, if that lives in your heart, if that's not just like a theological nicety, then it must, then it must utterly change how you view people. You'll have to have a humility of mind spoken of in verse 8. And an attitude of heart, a tender heart, and a compassionate heart. We all need to have this. We all need to have this. If we understand the compassion that we ourselves have been shown by our loving Heavenly Father, as Anthony showed us last week. You can't ever look down on anybody. Notice verse 8 there, it talks about harmonious brotherly love. We live in harmony with each other. And if you want true harmony and deep relationships, then brotherly love means not just tolerating your brothers and sisters in your church family. You'll need to wear things through, and sometimes really difficult things. They're talking and maybe even confronting sin in each other's lives. That's part of loving them. How do you respond when someone hurts you? When someone is unfair to you? Well, you can go three ways. Look at verse 9 there. Look at verse 9. You can go and get them. You can get revenge. That's one way. If you return insult for insult, verse 9 says, you return evil for evil. A lot of people do that. You blow your top. Or, another way is that you can just kind of simmer. I do this a lot. Simmer. Stuff it up. I do both actually, but this one. Simmer. Stuff it up. And freeze them out. You sulk, basically. Remember Bill Bargo saying that to me playing football, and he was always pushing me around the pitch. And uh, I got so fed up of it, I started sulking. He said to me after, are you all right? And I said, um, yeah, I am, yeah. He said, are you sulking? <laughs> and I was. And I said, and I thought, and I was really, that, that helped a lot. <laughs> uh, that's, what, that, that's what we do. We, we, we can, the same stuff, isn't it? We can simmer. We sulk. Uh, we stuff it up. We get depressed, maybe, if we do that too much. We get upset and tense. Or, there's a third option, you can go and get them and love them. You pursue them, but it's with the heart to bless them. 
Well, as the second half of verse 11 tells us, you pursue peace. Look at verse 11. Just I think this is a key verse. Verse 11. The second half of verse 11. You pursue peace. You confront them, but you do so for their good. And always in a tender-hearted, compassionate and humble-minded way. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Wow. It's a big big order, that, isn't it? Blessing others should be our agenda, not revenge. This is the way to true blessing. And verse 10, as verse 10 says there, good days and a life you'll love, a blessed and truly fulfilled life, as verse 12 says, and let's just read verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. This is part of that blessing. We go patiently. We go um, carefully to people and to bless them. Verse 12 says that God does not merely see you. God sees everyone, so what does, does this mean? It means that God particularly sees you. He's particularly interested and careful over you when you're living like this. He's hearing your prayers. Your agenda is his agenda. Why would he not hear your prayers? We go patiently, we go lovingly, but we go honestly to people. The good of, the good of those, maybe the good of those who've hurt us in our, in our hearts. But you know, you say, how? You know, that person has really hurt me. And I don't want to minimise that. I want to hear them back. But that's the point. You see, the gospel demands a love that can't be demanded. We're called to this in verse 9. And our Lord's compassionate love for us calls us to this. Peter isn't talking about moral niceness. You know, um, most of the people I work with are lovely, nice people, I have to say. They're nice people. One of them's here, so she'll go back and report on me if I don't say anything. But they are, I think, they're nice people. I, you know, that's what I'd say. Peter's not talking about that here. He's talking about something far more countercultural. This turns the world's values and rights agenda on its head. I don't know whether it's come to your attention yet that within the church that you're part of here, there are many brothers and sisters who are disappointing. that you've noticed that. They don't live up always to your highest ideals or even to your minimal expectations. And sometimes, you know, you become a little bit discouraged and you think that really you ought to be able to find a better outfit to belong to, if you like. Now, some people do that. That's what they do. They go to a church and sadly they discover that the church is full of imperfect sinners with whom God's not yet finished. And so in their disappointment and their disapproval they move to another church which looks much more sanctified and after a while they get better acquainted there and of course the same thing happens all over again. And so these people always keep moving because they're always looking for that church where everybody will be as sanctified as them. Incidentally, maybe you don't move church but you may as well have done because all you do is you sit there and sulk and moan about all the others all the time, usually to the person closest to you. Now what's going wrong? What's missing in people who act that way? Well, it's verse 8 and 9, isn't it? These virtues and these graces are lacking. 
And what are those graces? Well, those are the graces that are precisely needed to get along with two types of people, two classes of people, if you like, in the church. The people who are difficult and the people who are impossible. Okay? And you see, how do you handle difficult people? Well, you begin by trying to see things through their eyes. It's a pretty cloudy glass, all right, but you try and get into their skins and see it a bit like they see it. Realize their problems, get some idea of where they're coming from. You might be surprised, you know, as to what's going on. Maybe things you you didn't know anything about. But maybe, suppose it's pretty clear that this brother or sister is in pain, disheartened with their sin, defensive or closed up, maybe not how it presents itself. They seem quite nasty and cold to you. Well, what do you do? Well, Jesus shows you what you do. You get a basin and you get a towel and you wash your brothers and sisters' feet. That's what Jesus did for you. He's doing that for you every day. You try to help them with that sin. Now, I've got to thank Jane for this, the course we're doing on Sunday evenings, but she reminds me that you can just bet while you're doing that and helping them that they will turn on you with the very sin that you're helping them with. So an angry person will get angry with you at some point as you lovingly confront them. And a person who sulks, like me, will end up falling out with you. I'm not talking to you. Well, what do you do? Well, not what I've done in the past. You say, oh, stuff it then. How dare you? <laughs> I was trying to help you. That's not compassionate. We persevere. We go back and we don't give up on people because Christ never gave up on you. Even those who curse us, who do evil to us, we bless. We lovingly confront, maybe, but it's done to restore. We're to wash our brothers and sisters' feet, but we don't use death or salt water. We're to be humble-minded. This is what God did for, for us and does for us every day. And this isn't to be just for some Christians. You notice in verse 8 it says there, all of you. All of you. Again, what's Peter saying here? What's he showing us? Well, it's this. This is the evidence of a Christian life. The evidence of a person redeemed by grace. What is the model for our behavior as Christians? Well, it's love. But what kind of love? Think about that. It's the love of grace. And what's the love of grace? I don't know if you could put the next slide up for us there. I'm reading the biography at the moment of uh, Lord Ashley, um, who's better known to the world, I suppose, as Lord Shaftesbury, the 7th Earl of Shaftesbury. He was a 19th century politician and statesman. He worked tirelessly for the marginalised in society. He set up schools for the poorest children. He improved factories and... conditions for the mentally ill. Do you know, that was that time when the mentally ill were just discarded and he cared about them. He was deeply compassionate Christian man. Do you remember the scenes when Princess Diana died? Some of you are old enough to remember that. And the crowds in London. When Ashley died, when Lord Shaftesbury died on the 1st of October in 1885, the crowds were bigger. The slums of London came out onto the streets to pay their respects to Shaftesbury. 
He was known as the poor man's earl. Let me just tell you, there's loads of stories, but let me just tell you one story from his life. Shastri had gone out one day into London and his watch was stolen. Now news got about that, about what happened amongst the criminal fraternity in London, think Oliver Twist. And one morning, not long after Shaftesbury was about to leave his house, when he found on his doorstep a sack which had been tied and an envelope attached to it. He opened the sack and the envelope to discover his watch pinned to a young boy and a note saying, here's your watch and the culprit. Do as you see fit with it. Well, can I ask you what would justice demand? Or that he prosecute the boy stolen? What would mercy demand? That he forgive him? Can I ask you what you think he did? That's, that's, a, that's a great uh, attempt because it's a trick question, obviously. He didn't give him the watch. No, he did something else. Does anyone know? He did neither of those things. He adopted him. He does what Jesus does for every one of us here. He adopted him and loved him as his own son. He took compassion on him. That's the compassion of grace. That's what grace means. The love of grace. That's the love that we're called to. It's an undeserved love. Can I ask you a question? How much the way you answer this will tell you everything how much do you deserve Jesus' love I generally suggest that the answer to that is not at all while we were yet sinners the gospel says why were we the enemies of Christ he died for us can I ask you that given that that's the case who are you going to love Deserve it or the undeserved. This love that can't be demanded because the point of the gospel is this. It demands the love that cannot be demanded. Think about that. Could God's love for us be demanded? No. If that's the model, Jesus says, if you only love those that love you, what do you do more than anyone else? Everyone does that. But you're to love the spiteful, the insulting, Peter isn't talking about moral niceness here, is he? Peter is calling this to something far more countercultural, something more radical, something truly beautiful and powerful. You look now at chapter 3, verse 10 to 13. I don't know if you can put those up for us, Joe. Chapter 3, verse 10 to 13. Let's just read these verses. Um, verse 10. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But his face, the face of the Lord, is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But he, so, I'll stop it there. Just look at verse 13 for a moment. Let's work backwards on this. As a map. As a matter of fact, here, verse 13, who is going to harm you if you're zealous about doing good? Okay, that's what he's saying there. Christians aren't always being harmed, not always attacked. If you're trying to lead a life of blessing to other people, there's a good chance that that's going to be appreciated after a while. 
if you're, uh, uh, if you're, as verse 11 says there, look at verse 11, if that's you, you seek peace, then you will be a peacemaker in the situations you're in. And let me tell you, you'll be valued. In most organisations, and officers and staff meetings, whatever, a person who promotes peace, he pursues it. It's not fractures. It will be a blessing to society. You'll be a blessing to society. The wisdom of the gospel should come shine out from you. However, although it's not common, we will on occasions, even if we do that, suffer, Peter says here. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, even though it's not the norm. We should anticipate blessing if we live this life, if we live a good life, and we eagerly live like this. He says, you don't always have to think this is going to happen. Who will harm you, he says, if you're passionate for doing good. But even if you should suffer, even if, for righteous, righteousness sake, you're blessed. This is the second kind of blessing here, isn't it? The first is a, a life of blessing that comes from being a blessing. And often being appreciated because you are. And now here in verse 13, it's a different way to have a life of blessing. The promised blessing for the good of this good life is in verse 10 and verse 12. We read those before, didn't we, if you look at them. So what if you live a, a righteous life, but experience not good days, as verse 10 says, sorry, verse 11 or verse 10, but opposition and persecution, not having the life that you would love, not enjoying many days as you would like, but being persecuted, even perhaps at an extreme level, killed, for Christ's sake, that's happened. And it happens, it's happening at the moment. So Peter says, what happens then? What if you don't have all these good things happen to you, happening to you, that says in verse 10? What if a lot of bad things happen to you? Does that mean that God's promises of blessing have failed? God says, if you don't render evil for evil, if you don't have a mouth full of cursing and insults and bitterness and so on, then you'll have good days. That's what Psalm 34 says. You'll have blessing. Peter says, well, what if you get persecuted? Is that blessing? Peter says, yes it is. Why? Because, Peter says, even your persecution can result in blessing and great gain. You're following in the footsteps of Christ, God's King. He suffered and it issued him enormous blessing. So the general rule is that as we live a good life, we will be blessed and be a blessing to others. That's one way our changed lives will affect those around us. But the effects of our lives on other people are always conflicted. What do I mean by that? Some people will be very attracted and some people will be just like Steve. Take it, Steve. It might be important. Some people uh, might be attracted and some people will be, will be repelled by our lives as we live them. That's a sign that, you re- uh, that you're really a member of the people of God. Some people are attracted to you when you live this way, but some people will be repulsed. The more we live like Jesus, the more we won't get a lukewarm, tepid response. Look at chapter 2, verse 12, the context again. just want to remind us of that. That's what he says there. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
So they accuse you of doing wrong, wrong. They slander you, basically. They will try and find fault with you. They will come after you. There's a bias against you. Do you see what he's saying? However, others will be attracted and glorify God, he says, on the day of God's judgment. That's in heaven. They'll be there in heaven with you. Your life is so attractive. Radiant, luminous, it drew them in. People see a change. People, some accuse you, others are drawn and attracted. Can I ask you a question? How do you respond when people attack you then unfairly? How does God want you to respond according to these verses? You know it says in Mark's Gospel that even Jesus' own family rejected him. That's amazing, don't you think? There they are, living with Jesus, a remarkable person to say the least. And they were, there they were, grumpy. They were angry. They didn't believe in him. Yet other people, in spite of tremendous prejudices, were attracted to Jesus. That's the way it is. Jesus was a puzzle to people, an enigma, if you like. They couldn't figure him out. And if you really are a member of God's people, to the degree that you're like Jesus, that's how they're going to respond to you. That's what this passage shows us. They won't be able to figure you out, to understand why you're the way you are. You'll be a puzzle to them, like Jesus was. And you like that? Does anybody out there scratch their head like that about you? What drives that person, do they think? There's all this great stuff on the one hand, and then they say that Jesus is the only way to be saved. They have all these old-fashioned views about sex and sexual ethics. What's going on? They're great, but they're a bit weird. I don't know what it is about Rachel Stevenson, but a few years back, on two occasions, she's been in queues in shops and overheard people talking about me. And then she's told me, school kids, Basically, what she's heard them saying is, Mr. Bush, yeah, he's good. I like him. But, but he's a bit religious, isn't he? That's what she's heard. We don't get that. Well, if people scratch their head over this, that's normal. Well, how do you cope with unfair criticism? Well, we should try, as verse 8 told us, to, to empathize. Show a bit of empathy. The heart of people's opposition to us is this. Basically, people on the outside of the Christian faith who are not Christians. Uh, we're Christians. Christians are Christians because they found that the way to connect with God is to admit that you're weak, to repent, to see that you're not, that it's not your record, but the record of Jesus Christ given to you that enables you to stand before God, justified by faith. That's what makes you a Christian. All your life you thought that if you did connect to God, it would be through some tremendous moral effort. Uh, the only people you thought got connected to God would be the very, very holy, very godly, very moral, very self-controlled. That's what you thought. When you become a Christian, you cross the line, you realise that's the other way around. It's the people who will admit their weakness, people who admit that they can't save themselves, and the people who will admit that they are weak and sinful, who rest on Jesus Christ, they're the Christians. Well, here's the problem. People on the outside don't know that. They still believe what you used to believe. So if they're saying, if, you're, if they hear you saying this, I know God. This is his will in this or that area of life. And I won't compromise to that new ethical, moral view in society at the moment. They will assume you must feel superior to everybody else. They have to believe that because, you see, if they didn't, then they'd be on the way to believing. If you see what I mean. If they don't see it as arrogant that they're on the way to believing, 
So we mustn't be surprised, we mustn't be surprised of what it says in this letter. We may well be harmed, suffer, be insulted. People look at our good deeds and even and say, no, this is a scam. There's something wrong with them in that church. These people are arrogant. They have to feel that way. They just have to. Now, why am I saying this? Well, because Christians are starting to realise that other minority groups, that's, and that's what we are in a sense in this country, I know the recent poll said, census says we're 70%, but it's not, is it? All the minorities, when they experience bias and distortion in the media, when they get experience mistrust, they, when they get negative images shown of them, distorted accounts given of them of what they believe, all the minorities have learned to scream bloody murder. This is bias, they say. They yell, they scream, this is unfair, this is bias. And sometimes, and this is happening, Christians are starting to adopt the same thing. I read a Christian in a magazine complaining just the other day in the Telegraph uh, how Christians are always depicted as nutters and bigots. Here's the difference, though, between Christians and every other kind of minority. I'm not saying we should just let people walk all over us. I'm not saying that. Christians should care about justice. When Jesus Christ was slapped across the face illegally in the court of war, he protested. When Paul was slapped into prison without a trial, he was which was illegal because he was a Roman citizen, he, was, he protested. So I'm not saying we never speak up, but here's what I'm saying. Minorities have a right for the majority culture not to have a distorted view of them. Let me put it this way. Homosexuals have a right to demand that the majority culture not be hostile, that they get beat, so hostile that they get beat up on the streets or in the army, apparently, as it's happening. Black people have a right to demand that the majority culture put them on an equal footing when it comes to looking for jobs and so on. In other words, minority cultures have a right to scream bloody murder, but Christians must expect to be misunderstood. We're told to expect it. Put yourself in your enemy's shoes. Empathise with them. You need to believe you'd be the same if not for the grace of God. You must think that. You would be the same or maybe worse. You have to expect to be misunderstood. You have to. People will see you as arrogant and bigoted. When you make claims to truth, they're going to think that because they don't have your blessings, your open eyes. If they did, they'd believe. So I'm not saying you don't protest when there's a really clear injustice. But Christians must not. They must not do the same thing as other minorities. Because we will always and must always expect to be misunderstood. Expect it. Don't be shocked or surprised. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. It's not my verses. I don't know. I just want to touch on it. That's what Peter says there. You shouldn't be surprised or scream bloody murder. How can we? Let's face it. What do we believe after all? Well, Christians believe that God has come to us and lives in us. He speaks to us. But the world is full of supernatural forces fighting over our souls. That Jesus Christ is coming back soon, as he promised, to judge the living and the dead. Well, you know, by secular standard, that's crazy. That's what most intelligent people in this country think of our beliefs. You're crazy people. Put your hand up if you believe you're called by God to be an ambassador and to speak for him. Alright, so what's that then? What are you? You're a secret agent from God. <laughs> With a message that no one else believes. 
What will that be like to the average person who's trying to process this when you tell them this? The fact is, as C.S. Lewis says, Jesus Christ claiming to be God, if he isn't, is on the same level as a man who claims he is a poached egg. I was looking for some toast to lie on. There's no in-between. Jesus is either God or he's crazy. Or he's mad. Uh, he's uh, evil. That's Lewis's great conclusion from reading the New Testament seriously. If you read the New Testament, the historical witnesses, carefully, that's the choice. Okay. So it's the same with you and, and me. Anyone who doesn't believe Christianity, looking at you and me, and what we believe, either we are right and they are absolutely wrong, or else we are crazy people. My colleague in work said in Among God at moments, uh, one dinner time, basically, that Christianity is just a load of nonsense. He didn't say that, actually. It was something a bit more shocking. It's a load of nonsense, he said. That's his view. Absolute nonsense, he said. But you know, that's what I think. Had it not been for God's intervention in my life, in fact, that's what I did think. That's what it was worse. I thought Christians were dangerous too. You have to show some understanding, some compassion. You have to show some sympathy, not just to Christians, but also to unbelievers, even though it's insulting you. How can we expect people to be understood by people if we retaliate? Don't retaliate. Take a breath. Seek the good of the person. Bless them. Love. Bless. Set Jesus apart in your heart as Lord and bless. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 and 16. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Jesus is Lord in those situations. Remember that. He's in control. Follow him. Don't be afraid. You know who's writing this letter? It's Peter. And Peter, well, you can't help but thinking that this is autobiographical to some extent, isn't it? Peter's buckled, didn't he, when he was at the hall to answer. He was frightened. Did he speak with gentleness and respect, as the end of verse 15 tells us? No, it was swearing and curses and lies and denial. Was his conscience clear that evening he betrayed and denied that he even knew who Jesus was? But now what's changed? What's changed? Jesus is now the Lord of Peter's life. He set him apart. He's at the centre of all his meaning and personhood. As he should be and must be for anyone who is remotely aware of his glorious majesty and lordship. And this Lord is the one Peter follows. And what kind of a Lord is he? Look at verse 18. That tells you. He's the Lord who suffers and dies unjustly in order to bring sinful people, that's you, to God. So we, God's people, must be prepared to suffer unjustly, to give a gentle reason for the hope that we have, in order that sinful people might be brought to God. With loving compassion in the hearts, not fear. You speak because you love, you remain silent because you fear. 
You fear because Jesus isn't unashamedly at the heart of your life. Oh, you've forgotten that. You weren't prepared. You know, if suffering comes our way because we seek to live a righteous life, we need to remember that it may be, for, it may be bad for us, it might be hard. But can I just say, remember too that judgment for the ungodly, those who reject Christ, will be infinitely worse than the refining fire is for us. If we to suffer in the weeks or years to come, of this brief little life, we are to count ourselves blessed. Speak the truth without fear, with Christ in your heart, and offer the gospel and do good. Let's pray. Lord, fill our hearts with an understanding of your compassionate love for us so that we in turn love others. Call us by your love to love with the humility of mind and compassion and without fear even in the face of opposition, insults and misunderstanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.